Hello, my name is Declan Deneen. Welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode of guests on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. My guest today is Richard Frank, aka Miss Kitty Powers. Uh, such a thrill to speak to, to Richard. Um, uh, as as the kind of AKA in the introduction um, probably lets you know, Richard uh, has an alter ego, Miss Kitty Powers. It's his his drag persona. Um, and what's so brilliant and amazing about uh, Richard is that he's used this drag persona as the main character uh, in in a video game, in Kitty Powers Matchmaker. Uh, so Richard, like his story is amazing. He spent many years working for. EA. He was uh, worked on a, a bunch of Burnout titles. Burnout Three, in particular. He was the director of Burnout Crash. Uh, he designed the map in Burnout Paradise. Like all this amazing stuff. And now he's eventually sort of set up uh, his own studio, Magic Notion. And their first game is kind of like an arcade dating game. Basically, it's really good um, using the character of, of, of Miss Key Powers, which leads to all kinds of amazing meta moments uh particularly on, on youtube really brilliant chat such a thrill to to speak to to richard who i think is one of the the only video game uh designer slash drag queens uh there is so it's a very exciting get um yeah it's brilliant <clears throat> you have to excuse my voice uh, a little bit hopefully it's not too bad uh, i was in dundee on friday night for uh, the very first scottish Marioki. Uh, if for those of you unfamiliar with Marioki, it's uh, set up by One Life Left. So Steve Simon and Anne, um, two of the three, have been on the show before. If you want to dig back into the archives, and it's basically a whole bunch of of people um, have rewritten the classic pop and rock songs to be about video games, and it's just the best. Like it's, I, I can't stress enough how how joyful and wonderful uh, Marioki is. If you ever get a chance to go along, uh, grasp that opportunity with both hands. Uh, I en- enjoyed it so much, in fact, that I, I live in Glasgow. Um, but I travelled up to Dundee because, as I said, it's wonderful. Take every opportunity to go. Um, and I got so excited that I missed my, my last train, um, which resulted in me spending way more money than I'd intended because I had to drunkenly book a hotel room and Oh man, uh, wasted a Saturday with a hangover and a sore throat. Uh, but it was all worth it. It was such a good time. Um, IGDA Scotland kind of organised it, and so sort of big props to them. Hopefully, it will be the the first of many because it was uh, it was amazing. Uh, as always, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email it's checkpointspodcast at gmail dot com, or it's at checkpoint show on Twitter, or it's checkpoints podcast on Facebook. It's very important to have consistent branding. Um, please do rate and review the show on iTunes as well. I, I, I appreciate it. I keep going on about that. Um, but, you know, it's you only have yourselves to blame. <laughs> if I get, if I get like, five, right, let's say I get five new ratings and reviews this week, I will not mention it for, I don't know, a month. A month. Imagine that. <laughs> uh, if you really like the show, there's a Patreon too, which is patreon.com forward slash checkpoints. All donations very gratefully received and go back into making the show as good as it possibly can be. 
Um, I joked last week that I would just use that money to to buy a Switch. Uh, however, in the past week, uh, some a very exciting opportunity has arisen, um, which I will definitely be using the Patreon money for. So if anyone uh, is feeling generous, they've got an extra couple of quid, which, I mean, probably not, because <laughs> it's coming up to Christmas, who has? But if you do, and you're feeling generous, it'd really help. Um, it helped me put together this uh, this special episode. Hopefully, in the new year, I'll be able to tell you more about it soon. Though um, it's really exciting. Um, well, I mean, I'm not going to jinx it. Maybe nothing will happen. But yeah. So if you do have any money, though, that would all help in making that as good as it possibly can be. Um, I, I think that's everything. That's everything. Thanks, um, as always, for downloading and subscribing to the show. Rate and review on iTunes. Tell your friends on social media. All that good stuff. Um, it's a real great episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Uh, I'll be back next week, as always, with a new episode and a new guest. But until then, let's get on with the show. Well, let's, uh, before we get too deep into this, because there's so many interesting places to go, uh, let's do... Let's do a, a formal introduction for the sake of ceremony. So, uh, Richard, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming on. If you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? My name's Richard Frank. I am a video game developer. I have been for over 20 years now. Um, I started in indie, then I moved to AAA, worked for EA for 10 years, started my own company, Magic Notion, and then I created Kitty Powers Matchmaker. And I'm just about to release Kitty Powers Love Life. And I do drag in oh, my game. Kitty Powers Love Life? What is that the, the follow-up? Is that uh, the same sort of game? It is a follow-up. I didn't want to make Matchmaker 2 because Matchmaker was hard enough to make. And I felt like with me, we kind of tend to wring every drop of potential out of an idea and I prefer to work like that anyway yeah I don't like rehashing things so love life is a follow-up in that in matchmaker your aim is to take single people turn them into couples and in love life your aim is to take couples and stop them from splitting up with each other oh that's quite good that that sounds way harder as well it is mm, it's a little more complex because you're handling multiple couples at the same time. It's and a lot. There's more... no obvious kind of gameplay things that I can think of. Like when you think of a dating sim, I guess that's kind of a relatively established genre, and you can kind of you know you can understand various things about going on a first date and you you win or you lose essentially. Whereas with couples, I feel like that's way harder. Well, in match. Yes, a date is a very specific situation in which you can have sub-situations. So, yeah, it's much more... Uh, it was a much easier game to kind of come up with the basic structure, which we kind of had from the beginning, but the bit that was difficult was making it fun um, and engaging, whereas with Love Life, I wanted to make a relationship simulator which is way more complicated. Um, it sort of took a step towards The Sims, yeah. basically. But where The Sims focuses on everything, the minutiae of domestic life, 
we allow a lot of that to just happen automatically. Although it still has an effect on their relationship, you don't have to tell them when to go to the toilet. In fact, we don't ever mention the toilet. But um, <laughs> the toilet, we assume, happens. Um, but things like doing the chores and going to work still happen, but you don't have to tell them when to do it. They will just do it automatically. Because we're more, we're more focused on the relationship. So how far along like is that? Have you got any kind of idea of when it'll be done? or? Well, we were supposed to be out last Valentine's, but the game is so complex and has taken so long to get right that it's actually going to be out this coming Valentine's. <laughs> <laughs> That's been... fine, though. That's fine, as long as the game's good. Oh, no, it is good. It's definitely going to be good. I wouldn't release it if it wasn't, and that's why we keep delaying it. Our, our poor fans keep getting told, later, later. But they're very patient. We have a lovely community, and we've never had any grief from them. Um, we've had, in fact, considering how, you know, considering the drag and the gay thing, although they are not really that important to... Well, the drag, I suppose, is, but we haven't had any trolls at all, really, which is surprising, to be honest. That's good to hear. That's good to hear. Um, well, let's, let's, let's dig back then, Richard. Um, and if you can remember, what was your very first experience of a video game? Uh, oh, sorry, let me turn that off. Was that Did Messenger? Me uh, that was that was Apple telling me I needed to put a password in for an old email account that I don't use anymore. <laughs> that, that 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 I got full kind of PTSD memories then of that sound. It sounded just like this <laughs> messenger, like someone's just come online. I'm sure how to turn that off though. Um, I guess if we do hear any more of that sort of thing, we'll just have to uh, re-record that bit, I suppose, or something. No, it's fine. This is all staying in, Richard. This is all staying oh, in. Oh, really? Oh, good. Oh, fabulous. What's <laughs> and all. Um, first game I ever played was probably Pong, because I'm that old, that we had one of those wooden... One of those boxes that looked like a wood, Morris Minor crossed with a console. <laughs> and whereabouts was this? Like, where in the country did you grow up and stuff? I, at the time, was probably in Coolston, which is near Croydon, which is, you know, somewhere I left us. Well, I actually left it when I was 11, so... But if I had been given the choice, I would have left before that, probably. And how did that, like, how did that come into the family? Was that, like, your parents bought it as, like, a toy, or was it, like, a shared thing that I everyone imagine, enjoyed? My bro older brother is five years older than me, and I imagine it was his idea um, to buy it. I, I, have, I, to be honest, was quite young, so I have no idea what the circumstances were but i do remember playing it and i remember it being wooden <laughs> <laughs> and so what kind of next like was there a, a specific console or computer or game that kind of you felt was like your first you know this is what i'm interested in i don't know i've always been into games i mean i remember playing the other one that I really remember was on the ZX81 was 3D Monster Maze, which was amazing at the time because yeah. there were no actual graphics. Everything was done with ASCII art. And the fact that I was scared of this monster that was in this maze and the clown at the beginning that bows to you and all that stuff, all that made out of ASCII art and this three-dimensional maze with the Tyrannosaurus Rex running around in it was terrifying. There was no sound either. But there was sound because it said some kind of sound effect, like step. Whenever you walked for, oh no, you could hear. Sorry, you could hear the Tyrannosaurus Rex, but only because it wrote. Whenever you could hear it moving, it would say it on the bottom of the screen with two little asterisks either side. 
So those were the sound effects. And <laughs> but it's amazing because you, it's this is why you should never play a sequel before you go back and play the original, because when you haven't been spoiled by newer things, old things are amazing. But as soon as you've been spoiled by new things, old things seem a bit rubbish. So, it's very true. So if anyone now went back to 3D Monsters, they'd be like, what is this old rubbish? But at the time, I was a little kid. It was terrifying. It was great. No, I mean, I've had this myself, like, because I've spoken to so many people, and I I never had a home computer like that. I, my first computer was a, was a PC. I grew up on consoles. And so you hear people, like being just incredibly effusive about these amazing games and they sound so good and you go and look at them and you're like oh god that looks rubbish how did you I, I, that that control system or whatever you know exactly yeah um, the combat was another atari one because you could play it two players where you had the little biplanes flying around or the tanks in the little maze yeah, yeah, yeah. really good game probably could someone should do it now actually a little remake of that or um Jet Set Willy, that was on the Spectrum, I think. Yep. We had a Spectrum, then we had a Spectrum Plus 3 with a built-in disk drive. Fancy. We may even had a Plus 2 as well. But, I mean, we only really played games with them. And the bit where you had to... The bit with the tape recorder was the worst. It was the, probably the worst period in gaming for user experience was having to load a game off of a tape. That is but, true. But also, that allowed... Um... For copying... It allowed for copying, and also it allowed, like, this to me is still one of the most kind of amazing space age ideas, is um, Mel Croucher used to broadcast games over the radio. So you would, like, in the middle of the night, you could hit record on a tape. Really? And, and, yeah, <laughs> so you'd have these, like, mad kind of sound waves, but you record it on a tape and put it into the spectrum, and you could play a game that was broadcast over the radio, which I think that just, there's something amazing about that. We also used to get, like, little programs in... Um computer magazines that you could type in in basic on spectrum and so was that for you was that like your your first kind of steps into game design and programming and things mm, well my brother did it more than i did i i never i was always the arty one so i i just do comic books all the time and monsters and that kind of thing and so watching him do it obviously i had venerating older brother syndrome or whatever you want to call it yeah uh in fact that's why i became so obsessed because he always used to beat me at video games so <laughs> i was i'm gonna beat him one day and now i'm better at him at everything but only because i've made games for a living but um yeah i was i thought it was cool but i didn't have the patience i'd rather draw something so i that's how i ended up getting into video games was because i used to draw a lot basically but not even like not even like pixel stuff like you know creating stuff on the spectrum or anything like that. Um, I did used to, not on the spectrum. I wasn't. I don't know. I got into. I got into. I used to make things at a young age. Then I started drawing kind of in my teens, maybe a little bit earlier. So at that early spectrum stage, I guess. I was busy making cardboard castles for my She-Ra figures while my brother was copying scripts into his magazines and swearing because he'd got one of the letters wrong. Or something. <laughs> yeah. that, that, I mean, that sounds like quite like, was it, um, was it kind of a shared enthusiasm that you and your brother both had? Like, was it quite a kind of familial thing? 
Well, he would like to show off to me all the cool stuff. So he would show me all these amazing games, and I would try and beat him. And I guess he probably enjoyed it because he could always beat me. <laughs> but no, it was still a shared experience. And actually, in most other aspects of our lives, our relationship was quite dysfunctional. So I think computer games did bring us together in some way. And even like even recently, we played Minecraft and stuff together. In fact, that was that was it's still fun like um to do that stuff i think they are a, very much a vehicle for bonding if you if you find the right game and the right person yeah absolutely well well speaking of that then like outside of the the family did you kind of um make friends in school like did you kind of form <laughs> friendships around video games like in, in in school or outside of school in your street or whatever it's funny, actually, you should say that. So me and my friends at school were nerdy ones. I never, I never went... I always try to get out of PE, physical education, for those of you that don't know. Of course. Um, who, are, who are out of the country. Um, but And we were all nerds, so we loved all the cartoons and the sci-fi and the Doctor Who and the video games. So instead of playing football in the playground, we used to use the football lines that were on the tarmac to play things like Pac-Man and Space Panic. So we would recreate arcade games by running along the lines, <laughs> football pitch, and chasing each other. So there was that game Space Panic. I don't know if you remember, it was an arcade game where you had to dig a hole. To I don't remember, it. no. Shame on you. Sorry. Do <laughs> <laughs> um, It was an old one, I, yeah. You're obviously much younger than me. Um, and, yeah, so, like, playing Pac-Man or playing Space Panic, but with live-action people on a football pitch. That's amazing. Do you know, I used to do... Me and my, my nerdy friends did the same thing. But even even nerdier than that, we would do, uh, essentially, like, Dungeons & Dragons campaigns, but, like, maze campaigns. It was a, a real weird mixture of influences. But there was like you had to follow certain paths, and there'd be certain gatekeepers at certain bits, and you'd have to answer a riddle to be able to go down this path and yeah, find I, the treasure. I D and D as well. Um, to me, that was probably where my game design started. Was actually being the dungeon master, but I never really realised that until I started game designing in the games industry, and I was like, actually, I'm quite good at this. <laughs> and I realised oh, I've done it before. Um, so when did that all start then? Was that kind of quite young, the, the D&D? That was in my teens, the D&D. Um, and in university, I ran the... I turned up at uni and the RPG Society had kind of disbanded because they'd all graduated and there was no one to take the reins. So I arrived and it was like, why is no one playing Dungeons and Dragons? So I reformed the RPG Society, and they were like, oh, here, here's a key to the cupboard. I was like, oh, there's a cupboard, and I opened the cupboard, and there's all these RPG boxes and things, and I was like, hurrah. And then, you know, we played a lot of Dungeons & Dragons, a bit of Vampire. There was loads of other games, but you can only do so much when you're yeah. trying to But I ran a Vampire campaign, a D&D campaign, for three years. That was really good. And also back home... I used to play it with my friends that I'd gone to school with, secondary school. So that was. I suppose was that's that's. Just, I mean, as you said, like that that is that is game development in, in a sense, but also it kind of ties in with, as a kid, you know, you're you're more you're interested in making things and stuff and building castles and 
that can all play into tabletop stuff as well. Well, exactly. I guess yes, building uh, building uh, castles for action figures because the ones that you could buy in the shops were rubbish. I mean, there was never room to do anything in them. You want something huge with multiple rooms in it. So I used to build my own ones out of cardboard boxes stacked on top of each other and make little elevators and things. Um, that, in effect, is level design. You're creating an environment for characters to, to do stuff in. Yeah. And that is essentially what you're doing when you're designing a D&D map. You know, you're designing a level and then you're writing a story to go around it. Yeah. So I, I never used to use modules in Dungeons and Dragons because I've got a terrible memory. So I used to find if I designed everything myself, it was a lot easier to remember it all. <laughs> I'd actually kind of created it. Um, so plus I hate leafing through books the whole time. It's much easier to have everything you need in front of you that you've made, and that makes it much easier to manage. But anyway, that in a sense, in a sense, is what I ended up doing was. Designing environments in video games. So it's kind of, you know, now that I think back, it's a lot clearer to me, the path. So was that something you had in mind when you were younger, though? Like you said, you got into D&D when you were a, a teen, but like, were you still playing games? Like, was that still a big part of your life growing up, like video games? Was there never any kind of time when you're like, oh, no, I'm not interested in that anymore? Oh, no, no, never. I mean, at uni, I, I guess the emphasis came off them because it was busy and... But what did you go to uni for? Like, did you have an idea? Like, maybe I could do something with games. No, I went to uni and studied ceramics. Uh, here's the story, ceramics. right? Ceramics. Actually, actually, at uni, the gaming I did was on Telnet. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it was like the proto-internet. Okay. Before the internet actually came out. That's a stupid phrase to use. If you're not, <laughs> I do know what you mean. For yeah. The young kids. But before the internet kind of started. That was kind of just between universities and stuff, right? I don't know what it was, but we used to go on there and play these, what were they called, MUDs, multi-use functions. Mm. And we yes. used to into the science faculty because we were not science students. We weren't supposed to be in there, but we went in there. We might find, found a way to get into the computer room, and we used to sit on the computers and play multi-user dungeons, which are text-only, but they were multiplayer online. So it was yeah. like playing World of Warcraft, but text-based. So, yeah, I was gaming, but, um, yeah. So, yeah, let's, so here's the story. So I used to, so I told you I, my family was a little dysfunctional. My, I used to hide from my dad in my bedroom and draw comic books or draw fantasy pictures. So I got quite good at it. Then I, when I studied art pre-foundation, actually, you know, foundation course, I did all everything as you do when you do an art foundation I wanted to do illustration, and I really loved all this fantasy stuff. But obviously the lecturers were like, oh, no, no, no one will take you seriously doing that. You're really good at 3D design. Why don't you do a 3D design degree? So foolishly, being naive, I listened to them. And I got a place on a good course in Manchester, so I went there. But while I was doing this course, I was drawing all these comic books at home because I wasn't going out because I didn't have any money. Yeah. And... um, at the end of the course, I got 2-1 in ceramics, throwing pots and things, and one of my classmates showed me this advert for this games company that was setting up in Liverpool, which isn't that far from Manchester, so 
I sent them my portfolio of comics that I'd drawn in my spare time, and they gave me a job. And they taught me how to use Photoshop, although I had already used it in black and white on an Apple II. So I had some inkling of how to use a computer. And I had used Windows a bit, doing my dissertation and all that. So I was fairly accustomed. In fact, I had a computer at home. I had a Windows computer at home. So, I mean, um, I knew my way around a computer. But they taught me 3D. What was it called? It was called... It wasn't called Max. It was just 3D Studio. Yeah. There wasn't any Max at the time. It was DOS-based. And where was this? Like, what was the studio? I mean, it was Liverpool. But... Scavenger. You, you won't have heard of it, probably. They didn't last very long, to be honest. They started in America. It was started by some Scandinavians who had left another big company. And it was horribly mismanaged. They managed to persuade a bunch of people to give them loads of money. They spent it all in entirely the wrong way. The company lasted six months, but they'd headhunted all these amazing people from across the games industry to work in the studio and me. So I met all these amazing people, like Barry Mead, who now is part of Fireproof Games. He made The Room, which is a very big, popular game on um, iOS. Oh, yeah, the, the kind of puzzle box things. That's right. Oh, they're so good. That company, Fireproof, was formed from the team that I was the lead of at Criterion Games when we were making Burnout. Oh, no way. I didn't know that. Yeah, so... Yeah, so we're all good pals, and they're based in Guildford as well, so... Well, there's loads of games companies in Guildford. Anyway, so I had all these contacts, and that meant that even though this company didn't last very long, I managed to get a job with one of those people. So it's like... that, That seems like very much... That's. I mean, I'm. I'm not. I'm not gonna um, criticize your story. Everyone's story is interesting, but it's just that that seems very kind of matter of fact. Like, oh, I just saw a job ad and I got it. And well, you know, you just got to follow. Yeah. No. Totally. Opportunities. You know, like I thought this is probably the only chance I'm gonna get because at the time there was no way into the games industry, no formal way. But had you thought about it though? Like, was it something you thought? I wonder if I could do this. But the fact that they wanted people that could do comic book illustration and it was something to do with video games, I thought, I've never heard of a cooler job. <laughs> and so if I've got a chance, I may as well take it. Absolutely. Sod the ceramics. I never really was that into it anyway, even though I was good at it. I'm good at learning things. It doesn't mean I like them. <laughs> do you but still do that? Do you still find yourself kind of throwing apart? No, if, if you've had a bad day, <laughs> I can talk about them, and I'm, you know, when ceramic stuff comes up on the telly, oh yeah, I know all about that. But I feel like it'd be like immensely therapeutic. Like I used to, I was always building things with uh, like clay and stuff when I was a kid, but I never actually used a potter's wheel or anything like that. Ceramics requires an awful lot of equipment and stuff. Yeah, it requires a lot of dedication, which I don't just don't have time for. So. I'm going to do it when I retire, basically. I don't even really draw that much anymore unless I have to. Because I'm building, you know, I'm I'm more into the game design and the creative direction and all that now. But I still have an appreciation. I still have those skills. I yeah. just don't really get a chance to use them as much as I used to. I, I feel like, like we've sort of missed out on some games i suppose like was were you kind of purely kind of more um role playing and kind of tabletop stuff or, or were you still were there games that kind of stand out from that period like prior to you uh, going to work for scavenger 
as being like formative or ones you look back on and go, oh, you know, that was. That I imagine was I probably played more games when I went home for the summer, but that would have been mostly Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. which was very time consuming. Oh, of course, yeah. Time for anything else, but there will have been some Mario Kart going on somewhere, or um, the the thing is that back then it would have been console because I didn't really play games on on the computers that were around then, the 486s and all that, because there weren't any decent games on those computers, really. Well, at least there may have been, but they weren't the sort of things I played. But um, I loved Nintendo at the time. So, you know, SNES, NES, SNES, GameCube, all of those I owned um, at some point. So... They're all those kind of classic Nintendo games that run those formats I would have played. Um, I still became a bit obsessive about certain things. The problem is, I, like I told you, my memory is really bad. So I remember having those consoles. I don't remember what years they were out in. I don't, you know, if you, if you were to ask me what games I had on a particular console, I could tell you. But to remember back to which games actually played while I was at uni it was probably 1996 when I graduated so what game console was out between 93 and 96 that was kind of snares and then just on the cusp of N64 I think right so I played Super Mario World which was amazing and I completed it I think I got every star and the one that really really annoyed me was cheese bridge the secret exit we had to go underneath under the exit at the end yeah and it was such a ball ache but you (laughs) but yeah i managed to do that one in the end after several several times and swearing throwing of controllers um (laughs) what else on the snares mario kart uh there probably was a game boy around at that time wasn't there yeah definitely so black and white Game Boy game, Zelda, I love Zelda. I've played every Zelda to death. Some better than others. Every like one? The... Like even like the weird 3DO ones. <laughs> oh no, no, no. I mean the the important ones. The proper ones. Yeah, not the stupid ones. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I, I guess that, that the reason I'm asking this is like you you go into work for a, a, a game studio, like did you feel I don't know, like did you have like a game in your head that like oh maybe i'd like to make this because it seems to be a very kind of gradual progression to where you are now and like i I wonder what kind of prompted that if it was inspiration from some places or just a natural career progression what prompted me getting into games well no 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 like to you know you went in as a an artist and then to kind of eventually go on to leading teams and development and starting your own company and stuff let me think. So it's funny because, yes, you always go into games development thinking, oh, yeah, I want to make this game, that game. But actually, the reality is that if you're coming in at the bottom end of the ladder, it's going to be a long time before you actually get to decide what games are being made. It took me like 15, 18 years, probably. I was a couple of years before I left Criterion that I, that I got given a game to lead, which was Burnout Crash, which I directed, but I still, it was still a burnout game. It had to have cars in it sort of thing. So even then, though I formulated the whole game, uh, 
uh, with, I mean, alongside Alex Ward. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't until I started my own company that I got to say, right, we have a blank piece of paper, let's make a game, kind of thing. So, games have always been a part of my life and they have influenced everything, I guess. I mean, even the D&D and the cardboard boxes were game design. Yeah. Um, and other people's video games inspired me as much as my video games. Like my friend had an Amstrad. Ooh, Amstrad, it seemed really exotic. Or someone else had a <laughs> 64, which I didn't have. I had the Spectrum. And you always seemed to get a little bit of brand loyalty and a bit of rivalry. Oh, Commodore's better than Spectrum, blah de blah It's got more colours, woo. I mean, <laughs> Commodore's cooler if you were a demo programmer, I suppose. So it was more fashionable but spectrum was more dependable and there was more games you could get exactly because of the relentless piracy um so so what was like how how did you find the <clears throat> kind of first few years in in sort of game development then like how was it kind of what you imagined it to be like because i assume you would have always been around people that were into games so it's not like suddenly you're you yeah, know, but there's a big difference. There's a big difference between the users and the developers. Like, it's um, well, there is and there isn't. But when you've seen behind the curtain, things are never the same again. But I mean, at the same time, when I first became a game developer, I was super. I mean, I always had low self-esteem anyway because I was a nerd and got picked on. But I was very like, just tell me what to do and I'll do it kind of thing. Um, so I kind of just went from one thing to the next. I was very lucky really to stay in games because I think if you if you if you take any kind of break from games, you you will lose track because the technology will advance. So Absolutely, quickly. yeah. And you have to stay abreast of the technology. Like, it's like now if people still offer me jobs doing environment modelling and I'm like, well, I haven't used Maya or Max for three or four years. Um, I was lucky with Tearaway because they built their own editor, so every new person had to learn to use it. So, and like I say, I'm very good at learning things, but um, if you if you fall off that wagon, it's very hard to get back on again. It's easier once you've got to a higher level of, accomplishment and your directing and stuff because those are more soft skills i suppose yeah but when you're a technical developer you know with skills relating directly to the tech and the software that you use to make the games um yeah you have to stay on that horse basically so like i say it was it was it was tough because games companies i was joining them they were folding because the publisher would pull the financing or (laughs) people would just be rubbish at running companies so i went through two or three different indie companies and then ended up a mucky foot who were formed by people that had been a bullfrog working on theme hospital and all that kind of thing that was super cool i was there for three and a half years so that was a bit more stable 
and I learned a lot more because you the longer you stay at one company I think the more you learn to a point I mean there's always going to be a saturation point where you think oh well this company's no longer got anything to offer me and I will move on and so you worked on a couple of the the burnouts right like you said you would um you were the director of burnout crash that yeah that was a spin-off but the I was on burnout three I built the island paradise track which was inspired by Koh Samui in Thailand which was the last track you unlocked so I don't know how many people actually saw it but I definitely I, did that was that's still one of my favorite games it's so that was that was my university game that was the game that everyone played in the final year uh, and it was amazing the cool thing about Criterion was that the, the we actually had to design the track as well as build it and make it look nice on the track team so it wasn't like you got given a mesh that was already yeah. upon. You actually had to make it playable and make it look pretty. So that was really cool because it was art and level design. Um, then I, I got, oh, I also worked on the UI for Burnout Three. So I designed all those hundreds of screens because there were so many rewards in Burnout Three. We were constantly unlocking things. All that had to be presented in a nice arcadey way. So I had to design all those screens as well, and the HUD and everything. Oh man, the, 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 the team! But I had to—I was the one that mocked them all up in Photoshop, and then they were implemented, kind of thing. It was—it was cool. But I mean, it was there were so many screens; the entire office was covered in printouts, <laughs> like screen flow, like a flow chart, but with designs for screens, and literally the whole bloody office was covered in them such a weird thing though that because it's not weird but like i have such vivid memories of all of those screens because i went through them thousands of times and there was a little swipey thing in the corner oh it was so good i love the page was always red and sort of chunky like the burnout logo um then i worked on burnout revenge as i was in charge of the the environment team then the track team so I didn't do as much building myself. I did. I built the crash courses. We built special tracks for crash mode in that game that weren't the same as... Some of them used the race tracks and some of them used their own special courses. So I built those, those environments, but I was also leading the team. And those were the guys that ended up making Fireproof, who ended up making The Room, which did really well, and The Room 2 and The Room 3, and I think they've got another room coming out in the new year. Um... I, can you talk a bit about that? Because like I always find that like in terms of designing, especially like the crash mode thing, like I feel like there's so many variables. Like, how do you design that? Is it just trial and error? Just throw in different different kind of traffic and different vehicles and see what happens? Different, different games companies design and build in different ways. And the way that we used to at Criterion was less writing huge game design documents in advance and more building writing a kind of having an idea building a prototype and playing it reviewing it and then tweaking it and eventually throwing away that prototype and building a new one once you would learned enough about what you wanted to make so yeah trial and error more was more especially with physics games it's a bit like crash mode is essentially a puzzle game yeah absolutely there's a lot of physics involved so what you would do is I mean, I didn't actually build the crash mode events themselves. We just designed the courses. Um, so we would, there would be backwards and forwards between the track team and the design team, and they would place 
the cars and everything. And the, yeah, but it was very iterative. Like you stick the cars in, you drive in, you make sure the jump gets you to where you want it to get you. Uh, and then you have to sort of arrange the traffic so it hits the right spot at the right time. Um, yeah, so yeah, iterative and trial and error more than anything else. Well, it was it was wonderful. Um, I'm going to take a, a brief a brief aside for some relatively quick fire questions. Okay. Uh, so, Richard, if uh, you had to play a game with death for your own mortal soul, uh, what game are you best at? Um, what game am I best at? I would probably choose something like Mario Kart. Any particular version of Mario Kart? Um, I don't know. They're, they're all pretty much of a muchness. Maybe, the, I mean, the latest one's fine. Mario Kart 8, then at least it looks pretty before I'm killed horribly. Um, <laughs> or Burnout. Burnout 3 would probably be good. I'm pretty good at that. Burnout Revenge. Burnout Paradise. In fact, Burnout Paradise, I designed the city map. I didn't build the city, but I was in charge of the team again. And So Burnout Paradise might be a good one. That's cool. So, you, like, you built that city. I designed the map. I mean, me and my team talked about it, and we all, some of us came up with different designs. But in the end, it was my responsibility to to pick one and finalize it, and go, okay, this is where everything's going to be. Do you still know like all the secret routes and stuff? Are, are you that? Is it that kind of embedded in your head? It's been a while, but yes, it would all come flooding back if I played it again. That's amazing. I mean, that must be super satisfying to like design the map and then have someone else kind of build the world around your kind of the original design that must be amazing feeling there was a lot of minutia that i didn't design like each of the guys on the world team would take the map and they would each be given a road basically to design and then they would decide where the little side routes and shortcuts went and the uh jumps and the little nooks and crannies where we hid the sort of billboards and all that but um in general, yes. I mean, the the overall road layout and where the mountains were and where the city was and where all the main landmarks were was all... That's the bit that I designed. That's amazing. Um, well, on a sort of similar theme then, are you are you a particularly sort of competitive games player? Have you ever been locked in high-score battles with people? Um, yes. Uh, I'm a terrible winner and a terrible loser. <laughs> <laughs> excuse me um high scores well i mean even in kitty powers matchmaker we did high score table i mean which is because kitty powers matchmaker you say it's a dating sim but it's a it's an arcade dating sim which, yeah yeah there's so, lots of like little mini games and stuff within it but also we had all those sort of like hardcore game elements like achievements and and high score tables and all that kind of stuff uh, because I do come from that place in, you know, that's where I grew up. But Criterion was where I, you know, I formed a lot of my game design principles. And so I, even in a game about matchmaking and dating, I still wanted to have those things because I know they work. Basically. Yeah. So competing in that game was, was quite good fun. I mean, Mario Kart, my brother actually, so there was this, when we grew up in, near Croydon, Croydon was like the the town where you went to do towny things. Um, 
And there was this joke shop called Argy Bargy, which has probably been gone for decades now, but it was a That's joke shop. a good shop. name for a joke shop. It was, yeah. <laughs> they sold all those stupid, like, whippy cushions and yeah. fart sweets and all that kind of thing. But they also had a Donkey Kong cabinet in there. And my brother, Alan, used to go up there, and he took me up there once or twice because I was very young, and he would compete for high scores. And whoever got the high score on Donkey Kong got to write their name on the cabinet in black marker and i think he did actually end up getting his name on that cabinet and then someone beat him and he got really upset about it but yeah <laughs> <laughs> oh man i wonder where that cabinet is now that'd be that's such a nice sort of relic i know it's like an artifact it's probably got magical powers <laughs> yeah for my i can't really remember a specific example of my own high school thing i don't think i've ever been i've always been quite good at everything but not brilliant at many things so i don't think high schools were ever really my thing especially nowadays that you're playing online and there's like 12 million people in front of you in the, in the queue like i'm not in a car i'm like well i'm good but i'm not that bloody good i'm time really to practice that much um well sort of continuing on that theme then since you're a uh a bad winner and a bad loser like if, if you are prone to such things what has been your worst rage quit uh rage quit was fallout 3 fallout 3 that's you mentioned that previously and it's such a, an odd i can't imagine rage quitting at that game you know what it was it was the manual save oh um, no uh i you know it was saved automatically when you went through doors right yeah, yeah, yeah. cool and when you're going in and out of bunkers and shit pardon my french um it would say for you so that was all cool but um the problem was i spent an awful lot of time up on the ground and i did a whole bunch of the game and then for some reason i i don't know why but i didn't save and the game ended and when i loaded it up again i was like an hour's worth of gameplay had been lost. I was so irritated, I never played it again. <laughs> I was only about a third of the way into the game. So to me, that felt like the worst rage quit because I basically missed out on two-thirds of Fallout 3. <laughs> so, so angry. And what, when I say I'm a bad loser and a bad winner, I do ham it up a bit. I'm not really that bad, but I, you know, I like to make you feel feel bad about yourself when when you make me lose um has there ever been a game that's kind of uh, consumed your life to the point where you're like i need to uninstall this this is getting in the way of reality world of warcraft final fantasy 11 all the all the bloody massively multiplayer things so when, did, when did they kick in like when did you start doing that i'm assuming you would have been like working by then yeah, I was. I'd been working for a while. I was with a particular boyfriend. He was. A, he was unemployed at the time because he was on a visa. Because um, we hadn't been. We we were waiting for us to have been living together long enough, to him to get his visa because he was, you know, not English. Okay. So he had a lot of time on his hands, and he got horribly addicted to World of Warcraft, and so I was playing it as well. To, show solidarity and actually got really into it I got a couple of levels I got a couple of characters up to level 70 or whatever and then I was like okay I have to stop now but he carried on and it took him quite a while to get over to get 
peeled away from that. But um, but was that like a thing you you would do together? Like that seems yeah, like yeah, quite yeah. a fun kind of relationship thing to do. Yeah, no, it was great. And we played that. We also played Final Fantasy XI, which was super cool. I don't know how I survived the UI, though. I mean, some of these Japanese games have the worst user experience, but they're so good that you can't, you have to battle through. Um, even Final Fantasy still has terrible UI, but anyway, that's, I'm digressing. Um, <laughs> um, okay, has there ever been a, is there a game that you kind of, that's like your your chicken soup like a game that you go to for for comfort for comfort animal crossing was one of those games i love animal crossing so i'm obsessed with procedural stuff so i love anything which simulates nature or natural things like life yeah um uh or people whatever so animal crossing it's a sort of Sims, but it's a very light. I don't like the Sims because it requires too much micromanagement. Yeah. But Animal Crossing doesn't, and you can just dip in and out of it, although you do have to pick a few weeds if you leave it alone for too long. But I definitely went back to that for many years. Any I even, particular version? Um, I didn't really play the one with the little town. But I mean, at the first Animal Crossing I played to death, and the one after that, which I can't remember the name of, the ones on the GameCube, though, and I, and I went, yeah, and then I went back to it on Animal Crossing New Leaf, and played that one quite a bit. But when I was playing the first one, I, uh, I started a Facebook group, and it's funny because I was playing it hardcore for like a year, and I had this Facebook group, and I kind of didn't really do much to it. It was just a place for people to connect up so they could swap things, like with friends or just the. Uh anyone it was open to anyone and it was funny because when things got busy at work or whatever i i stopped playing for a while and i forgot about the facebook group and when i went back like a year or two later it had exploded and there's all these people swapping things and all that and i hadn't even looked at the bloody facebook group so it was that was quite strange. how did people how did people find it they just do a search on facebook for groups and the, i mean at the time it was quite early in animal crossing i mean now there's loads of them but um there was only three or four when i started mine um yeah it was it was quite surprising that something had taken on a life of its own without any and you so you didn't know any of these people like did you get to know any Uh, of these people it was great it brought a lot of people together Uh, that was one of my favorite games for sort of meeting strangers online and sort of playing with them and having fun that didn't involve shooting them in the face um also i the other game I go to is Witcher 3 because it's so enormous. I don't get a huge amount of time for games um, that every time I kind of sit down, I can't think of anything else to play. I go back to The Witcher 3 and do a bit more of it. So it's like new games will come out and I will play those. Like Mario Odyssey's just come out and I'm working my way through that. But if I need a break from the current game, I will go back to Witcher 3. So that's always sitting in like second reserve kind of thing. Uh, given then the sort of the, the this breadth of uh, emotion that games are able to evoke, uh, laughter is generally one of the the rarest. So, what games have really made you laugh? What games have made me laugh? Worms used to make me laugh because yes. it's like shooting each other. Me and my brother used to play that together. The uh, accents were really good as well. Like that, I remember specifically 
playing that in kind of high school, I think, towards the end of high school, and just cycling through all the different accents, thinking it was hysterical. In a way, that system inspired parts of Kitty Powers' Matchmaker, because we have accents in that. Although yes, not, you do, like, yeah. We write the script in accents. Um, in fact, that game also makes it off. I know it sounds odd to, to name my own game. <laughs> but the game, my games are designed, because they're comedy games, we, do, we work very hard to make it so the comedy doesn't get old. Because this, so we write so much script that you you rarely see the same things very often, and there's so much in there that I mean, there's even stuff in there that I haven't seen yet because this my brother writes so much content, and you obviously because it's a procedural game, you have to kind of wait for things to happen, but it all pans out in different ways, and so and also obviously he's writing new things because we're still finishing the game, yeah. but. I still laugh at that because also a lot of the comedy is procedural, like the character names. The character names are amazing. I was going to ask you about that. Like, are they all procedurally generated? Well, we write, we just write a huge list of first names and then we write the beginning halves of surnames and the end halves of surnames and they get randomly put together. Actually, some of the combinations were a bit unfortunate, so we had to kind of tweak the system a little bit. (laughs) Like, how so? Well, well. Because you know you use names of colours. You might have, you know, you might have white head or or, or green bottom or whatever. You know, like yeah. there's certain combinations we had. <laughs> you know, like bordered on like racial slurs <laughs> or like slightly too filthy in terms of body parts and that kind of thing. So we had to uh, avoid those kind of combinations, but um. Yeah, uh, also even just the characters themselves, you know, you'll get, sometimes you'll get a character who looks a particular way that will remind you of something, even though they've been generated randomly. And if you're really lucky, their name will compound the comedy because (laughs) it's appropriate in a stupid way. And you have, those are the characters that feel so designed, even though they've been generated procedurally, that it's like, gold you know it's and those things happen you know often enough that they're a joke in themselves and i think that's part of part of what makes the game so much fun is the proceduralness which which is what makes me this me makes me tick anyway um what other games do i find funny gang beast is hilarious just because of all the god yeah so good sort of sumo wrestling physics based nonsense like when you're both standing next to a fence trying to chuck each other over it (laughs) into the abyss and like flopping about all over the place there's something about games like that that's really funny ragdoll physics for the win oh absolutely yeah well since we're talking about kitty powers then i guess we talk about like what prompted you then to to make this move off into independence and start your own company in the game and stuff well, the problem with moving up the corporate ladder is that it's a corporate ladder and you end up not doing actual game development or you, you end up in management and all that kind of stuff. And as somebody who is not really interested in any of that, I'd rather just be making things. It just became awfully stressful. So I decided to leave because... I wasn't happy anymore. Not because 
place was bad. It was just yeah, the the role you were in didn't seem felt like I wasn't learning anything anymore because I'd been there so long, and at least the stuff I was learning, I didn't really want to learn, like how to go to meetings <laughs> and how to take orders from people that you didn't really want to take orders from. So I was like, no, I need to be running my own thing now. So I took the leap of faith and. And did you do that with with uh, Kitty Powers Matchmaker in mind? Like, did you have this idea in 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 your head? Well, I was doing drag already as a sort of hobby, and I was like, well, I need to either stop doing drag because it's too expensive, or I need to actually make it work for its living. So, and I was just around the same time I was starting the company, and I thought. I wanted to do revolutionary things, but obviously I only had a really restricted resources. So I thought I'll have to use the resources I have at my disposal. And I also wanted, and I, you know what? Maybe I'm a bit of a diva, but I was like, why is why why do actors and musicians get to be on the cover of their products, but not game developers? And I thought, well, no one's going to want some forty-something bloke in a hoodie on the cover of their video game. So what if I take Kitty Powers and put her on the cover of a video game? Well, then I have to make a game that she would fit in. And I also wanted to make a game that wasn't about killing things and destroying things. So I thought, what's as a design challenge to myself, what's the complete opposite of killing things? Well, that's making people fall in love with each other and have babies. So let's make a game about that. How do I make that fun? So that was the initial challenge. It took a year of prototyping, but it's like I didn't look at other dating sims for 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 reference because I was like, I want to build a system that simulates dating from the ground up. And because I was more used to building arcade systems or at least designing them, yeah, especially with Burnout Crash because that was essentially a pinball game with a little bit of driving, but not really driving, driving. And it was very puzzly. I would kind of, and I love that kind of gameplay. I love arcade gameplay because it's replayable. Absolutely, yeah. You can play it over and over and over again, and because it's got enough randomness in it, but not too much, you can kind of, you can always play it and have a different experience, which is another another thing that goes along with the procedural stuff. So I wanted to make a procedural game that was baked about making people fall in love with each other that had a drag queen in it. So I was like, okay, well, let's make a dating sim, but you don't want to be dating as yourself because then you're going to run out of game. Because it's like, well, then you you make a couple and then you're in a relationship, so you can't date anymore. So that's the point. <laughs> so let's have a procedurally generated customers come into your business you're the matchmaker you match make the client with a lit from a list of the black book um kitty powers is your boss so she leads you through the game and she appears and makes stupid comments although i do think like that one of the, the master strokes of the game is that you create your own virtual avatar which you can then send to other people's games which i mean that's amazing yeah that is cool and it sends you well that system was flawed, actually, unfortunately, because of the progression. Don't ruin uh, the magic. It haunted me for ages. Well, it was okay if you picked geek, because everyone picked geek, and that was the problem. They were all geeks. 
so the so the numbers were horribly uh weighted which meant that the system didn't really work very well so we had to we we kept trying to fix it and make it work and in the end we just gave up and we changed it and actually made it better in the end because we created a system whereby it would then send rather than send you letters about your character's dating exploits the problem was that the types got unlocked over the course of the game yeah so the types that got unlocked towards the end of the game would never get used from the pool of players so if you play a picked chic as their avatar type their avatar would never get used in anyone's games because because most people don't play a game to the end so chic types weren't getting unlocked so no one needed them and those people didn't get any letters back telling them how their avatar <laughs> You're breaking the hearts of a certain no, subset of players. Horrible. I hate that. So <laughs> in the end, because you could put your friends in the game as well from Facebook or whatever, you could... Um, we changed it so that you'd get letters when your friends sent you on a date. And it was a much more dependable system. Okay. I mean, the problem with being revolutionary is that often things go horribly wrong, and we just didn't <laughs> see that. We should have really, and in hindsight, it taught us a lot. But um, we will be a bit more careful with love life. But yeah, um, yeah. I mean, social is good. I don't just don't like doing direct social multiplayer because it's hard, and it's it's a bit like with the Nintendo way of doing multiplayer you try you have to try and keep the players a little bit apart from each other they don't let you talk to each other for example um on nintendo but that's kind of nice because you can i'm sure there 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 will have been kind of similar to your animal crossing facebook group there'll be kitty powers kind of groups of people discussing things and you know people will build their own communities outside of the game if they like the game yeah, enough you know yeah on steam there's a the four of the community forum that's pretty healthy people asking each other about stuff in the game yeah it's good i love i love that the game is built with love i love the game i'm an artist and i make this game because i love it right and it's come from my heart and i think people can feel that when absolutely they yeah um, you know, I'm an artist. I make games because I love making games. I'm not making games for the money, although money is nice. <laughs> um, I'm not one of these people that's, oh, yeah, let's just build a match three game and then sell the company for half a million or five million or whatever you want to call it. You know, there's a lot of that in the games industry. But weirdly, like, I would say that Kitty Powers is, is um, in terms of, like, the potential audience, I think it's much broader. Like, it has the potential of reaching that kind of massive audience like more so than you know a lot of uh, a lot of other kind of arcade type games maybe yes. i'm misreading it i don't know no, 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 no that was all strategic as well i thought well everyone knows about dating and everyone wants to be in well most people want to fall in love with someone and live happily ever after so let's make a game about love that everyone can identify with because then your potential audience is huge the game it has <clears throat> the game has been successful. It's not been hugely successful. We haven't got the numbers that most other games have got, but we've got enough money to make another game, which we have done, um, and to live, you know, which pay our bills, which is nice. Um, but yeah. Um, and you said you mentioned like in passing that your your brother works on this game, so that's 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 nice. That has kind of come 
full circle like that your brother is now you're working together on the games like did he work in the industry prior to that no he drove a bus a coach rather (laughs) (laughs) that's so nice though like i i feel like that's a really heartwarming tale that you know, he was this say, figure that inspired you, and then you, you're later working together on your own games. Yeah, he inspired me. His sense of humour rubbed off on me. Like we grew up with Kenny Everett, um, you know, like irreverent humour, um, that kind of silly Monty Python and Carry On films, which are a bit inappropriate now, but all those things formed our humor like together we, we he is really good at he writes things that i think are funny because we have the same sense of humor basically and he's actually because he's focused on the writing only he actually writes better than i could because i'm too distracted by other things and but i'm he's the only person i trust to write stuff in a way that if i you know he has he he takes He's like he's almost like he's ghostwriting for me, but he actually does a better job of it than I would. Yeah. <laughs> I just I think that's that's a lovely side of the story. Um, I'm I'm interested to talk about Kitty Powers as well, just as a like I mean it's not necessarily even anything to do with with video games, but nevertheless I haven't spoken to a drag queen on the show yet. So like, how did that? Where did that interest come from? And like, I just I'm I'm just curious as to the whole process of it of it. Um. I don't know. Psychologically, I don't know where it comes from. Like, I've got femininity in me, and I just like to unleash it in one big go every month or two. It sounds weird, but... I mean, as the artist, I like creating things. Yeah, I like absolutely. characters, and in a way, creating drag costumes is like designing characters. And when I'm not in the game, and the game has a... In the game, Kitty has a specific persona. But when I'm just doing appearances and stuff at events, um, I like to mix it up and try different looks and all that kind of thing. Because, like, you know, the fans like a bit of variety. And they're like, oh, what's Kitty going to do next kind of thing? And also, I didn't really want to get typecast as the as the matronly boss of a, de- of a matchmaking agency. Yeah. Kitty needs to exist outside the game because... Kitty is kind of me and I am Kitty. Although I do feel like I'm playing a role when I'm Kitty Powers. She is still formed from something, a part of me. Some, I'm just, it's like the volume knobs just turned yeah. in this, different ways like, kind of thing. Like if or, I did an interview with Kitty Powers, all of her formative games would be relatively similar. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. She is me and I am her, but she's, She's different as well at the same time. But um, I just did start it as a hobby. And I th- part of it is also, I guess, that I was always frustrated by my own lack of confidence when put in front of people. And I thought by thrusting my hand in the fire and doing drag and going out in public just so ridiculously, it would kind of help to... Uh, It'd be like therapy. It would it would get rid of those demons and and make me and I did was doing that at work as well by putting myself forward to speak any kind of public speaking thing. I would even though I was t- terrible on stage, I would keep putting myself forward for them because I wanted to get better at it. And drag part of why I did drag was that as well. 
along with all the creative stuff. And it seems but, to have worked. Like, you know, you, you seem extraordinarily confident and uh, very comfortable chatting and stuff. It definitely helped. Um, I mean, I've always been okay one-on-one. It was just when putting on a stage in front of people. Because I, I was overweight as a child, and I didn't want to do gym or anything. I didn't really want to be the focus of attention because I, I just felt horrible about myself. Um, and all that obviously coloured my personality as I grew up kind of thing. Yeah. So, but now it gave me obviously a much better appreciation for my ability to now be able to do that, to get, walk in Times Square in full drag, seven feet tall, like last week. <laughs> Hilarious, like brilliant fun. And how many people get to do that or have the balls to do it? You know, it takes an awful lot of balls, ironically, to just <laughs> go and walk across Times Square. I've done it in Leicester Square as well in London. It's amazing. Like part of the magic takes an awful lot of annoying faff to get in drag convincingly, right? It's all it's easy enough for a rugby player to stick a dress and a wig on and a bit of crappy lipstick and you know, mess about in drag yeah. in a pub, but it's a lot different from doing it to the level, or at least approaching the level of the queens on RuPaul's Drag Race, you know, and being actually kind of fierce looking and with a really good makeup job and, you know, walk walking properly and padding your hips and all that kind of stuff and thinking about what you're wearing and designing a costume. But once you're in it, because all that's incredibly painful most of the time. But once you're in it and you're in public and people are going, wow, and people you walk past on the street make, and you go, work, and all that kind of thing, you know, it's, that is magic. <laughs> it is like magic. Because you're that turning amazing. a bloke that goes to the gym and is, you know, quite burly into this glamazon it's magic. It's like a magic spell, and it requires material components like lipstick and wigs and things. It's the, the, it's the hair that gets me. The hair is so gigantic. Like, just I, I don't understand the architecture of it. Almost. But that's part of the that's part of the trick. Is if you make the head bigger, it makes the body smaller. Because I'm six foot two, right, and I've got quite broad shoulders. But if I've got big hair or a hat or whatever it diminishes the size of everything else. So even though in proportion, if you see Kitty Powers on her own, she's, you know, she's got reasonable proportions for a female. If you stand next to anyone else, the illusion goes out the window because she's like a million times taller than them. (laughs) Giant, giant lady. I mean, obviously, I don't look like a woman when I'm in drag. I look like a drag queen, but, you know, there is, you know what I mean. I do know what you mean, yeah, I do. Do you think do you think there will be now more game designers exploring drag, or are you are you happy to have that niche? Things with game designers is they like to dress comfortably, and being a drag queen is extremely uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, um, I don't think there'll be much competition for a while. I is mean, there dra- a drag game like you mentioned? RuPaul had put put a name on um on a, on a game i'm assuming that's like a kind of dress-up game because i feel like that's no it isn't though this is the point this is like uh, they just made a well i mean i know the people that made it and i love them very dearly but they did just clone some kind of puzzle game and it and it 
was not as good as the original. So to me, it felt like a fail. I think a the wasted first, opportunity. First game was an endless runner. Second game was a Peggle clone. So as much as I respect them, I felt like that was lazy, a little bit maybe. But yeah, you know, because you could do a really fun like even just like a, a basic sort of character creation thing. You could really play up the sort of drag aspect of it. And well, I think that'd be really fun. I've got an idea for a game which I'm probably going to be making next, which does involve all that stuff. Good. So watch this space, kittens. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think the one that Bible Girl, she's another drag queen who did a video game. The second one that I told you about, Bible Girl's Big Apple, that has some dress-up elements to it, but it's a very complex game. It's a little bit like Katy Perry's game or whatever it was. Was it Katy Perry or Brittany or someone? I imagine you know, all of them. Kardashian. Kim Kardashian did a game. and, and Oh, yeah. No, that's, that's, that's by all accounts very good. Who was I talking to about that? Brie Code. Brie Code was talking about how much she enjoyed oh, yeah, the Brie's Kardashian game. Brie stayed here a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, she's a good laugh. Oh, she's um, great. Yeah, Kim Kardashian's game quite revolutionary in a lot of ways but it is another one of those games that demands money off you every five minutes which is a bit annoying but there are aspects of it that are quite uh progressive i suppose but again the thing with people from who aren't game developers making video games is that they don't really have a good sense of what makes a good video game do you know what i mean i do yeah i do so you end up with, okay, well, you've got all the bits there, but they're not very refined. And you, because you're not very experienced at doing user experience or user interface, then things get clunky and things aren't very clear or things aren't very readable and the audio is not very good because everyone lose. Most people don't realize the power of audio as well. Like audio is incredibly important. Audio is magic. Audio is the most magic bit of a video game. You can imply so much with good audio. Yeah, absolutely. And actually draw kind of thing. It's like... It's it's like the, I think it's true in film as well. Like if you see... You could you could have a, a film shot on like a crappy old VHS recorder. If you've got amazing sound, it's the best. I know. It transforms it. Like, I've seen movies ruined by poor musical sound, and I've seen games ruined. But the problem with audio is it comes at the end of game development. Yeah. And most games run out of time, or they run out of money, and they have to rush the end bit, and that always means the audio loses out, which is which is a shame. But we always make a big effort with audio. So, yeah, Love Life, we've actually had music composed specially this time instead of licensing it. So, oh, it's going to be fabulous. <laughs> um, I, I feel like we've covered all sorts of good stuff, Richard. If there's anything that kind of hasn't come up, though, can you can you think of anything? Um, I, I mean, <clears throat> I just want to say thanks to my fans, actually for being very supportive because it's not easy being independent game developer. So, you know, it's, it's been very hard making a sequel or not really a sequel, a follow up, I suppose, because, um, we thought it'd be quicker because we had a bunch of stuff we could use from matchmaker and all that, but making a SIM is incredibly difficult to balance and test, which we didn't realize. 
Um, so, you know, I just appreciate how patient everyone is because there's a lot of people on you you know matchmaker went viral on youtube yes i mean there's a, i've seen many of the videos yeah so which is that, actually that's one of the other slight aside but that's one of the other reasons why the the accents in the game are so funny is seeing american streamers attempt kind of cockney accents when they're reading out the the dialogue in the game it's amazing well it was um the youtube thing was something that i didn't predict but Luckily, because I designed the game to be audience friendly, to be fun to watch someone else play. Yeah. A game show, which was so that was inspired by game shows because I wanted it to be fun. I wanted to have a, a multiplayer aspect, which, but I wanted it to. I wanted to not have to implement a multiplayer gameplay. Yes. The, the way I did that was by using gameplay from game shows rather than other game video games. To make it fun to watch, because everyone loves to sit around the telly and scream at the telly when there's a game show on, even though they're not playing the actual game. Um, that made it incredibly suitable, as, long, as well as the procedural stuff for YouTube, because it's super user, it's super viewer friendly. Yeah. Um, so that all exploded. So that was great. And then also, you know, I've been over to LA to appear on Cupquake. She's now in the Guinness Book of Records for the most popular female YouTuber or something. I saw that episode with, with you, you as the guest. It was brilliant. It's two episodes. So oh, I went two. Once, and then I went again. Um, uh, so she's been incredibly supportive to collaborate. Is, that, is, there, is, there, is, there, is there an element of frustration in that, though, that, you know, you because it has this kind of user friendliness and, and those videos have got like millions of views like yeah. that, that that doesn't necessarily directly translate back into sales of the game oh it definitely translates into sales yeah whenever she does a video our sales double oh for, amazing only, only for a few days but when she was consistently putting them out i mean the game's been out since 2015 yeah no it's been a couple of years Still sells, and whenever you know the numbers obviously dwindled a bit, but it's got an incredibly long tail. Like it's a very evergreen game. We've never made huge numbers, but we've made consistently okay numbers, which yeah. is fine by me. You know, um, because we don't do an awful lot of advertising except when Kitty Powers gets rolled out to add some. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Um, yeah, so YouTube, I mean, you know, when PewDiePie did two videos of the game, the, the sales spiked massively because he's got a huge user base. So there's definitely a correlation. The game would not have been successful without YouTube. So, yeah, I suppose, like, I mean, I'm I'm looking at it from the point of view, I'm kind of thinking of it like th there's a lot of games where you can kind of watch a playthrough on YouTube, like a, like a, a walking simulator style game and kind of get the full game experience in theory you know because it's just here's that one story where someone plays through it whereas oh, yeah. with with your game it's procedural so it's going to be yeah, different exactly. every the time game, it doesn't matter it, yeah the gameplay is emergent because there's enough randomness to keep it unpredictable that even i can still play the game and enjoy it you know so and also because you never see the same characters twice yeah. everyone gets different characters so every youtuber can still have their own unique gameplay because they all have a different game so the characters are different they will react to these situations in different ways um love life will be even more like that because it's deconstructed version of matchmaker really with more content so stuff can happen at any time 
and the multiple couples will be at multiple stages of their relationships. It's still built on little mini games and stuff and situations happening, but all that's driven from a simulation rather yeah. than just a linear sort of circular arcade game type st- style gameplay loop. Um, I'm, I'm like I, I know I said I was going to finish it a second ago, but I'm, I've, new questions are coming up in my head. We've been chatting. Like you talk about thanking the fans and fans sticking with you. Like how do the fans see you? Richard as a separate person to Kitty like do you have different relationships in that way do you know what I mean I yeah I mean I've I've struggled with this myself because I kind of I've got two Instagram accounts one for me and one for Kitty I do appear on Kitty's one out of drag because otherwise there wouldn't be enough content really but um and I do want the younger fans to understand that I am a man in a, a costume yeah and it's okay to be that you know, and also, even though my game is for everyone, I still get marginalised with the LGBT thing. Like, because I'm gay and Kitty Powers is a drag queen, drag queens are very popular with gays, but Kitty Powers is actually more uh, in the vein of mainstream drag like Little Britain or Kenny Everett. Who wasn't, well, he wasn't that mainstream, but he was on the like Lily, Lily Savage is the one Lily I Savage, think of, yeah. you know. Everyone loves Lily Savage. I mean, they're all gay, the actors or whatever that play them, apart from David Williams. But um, uh, that's more the kind of drag that inspires Kitty Powers. She's not a lip-syncing, catwalking, like, nightclub-performing drag queen sort of thing. Um, I've forgotten what the question was. What was the question again? Just like, how do people relate to you? Like, how do fans of the game do they? Do they is it a relationship with Kitty or with you? Or like, is it, oh, is, see, is that yeah. two separate well, things? Um, I think it's very much with Kitty. I mean, I still get called Kitty. I got I get emails occasionally telling me how, from young girls telling me how great Kitty is, and that, which is really lovely. You know, it's like. And I often don't know how to respond because I should write back as Kitty or, you know, or when, I, when I'm when i writing on the Facebook pages and all that, which is probably Instagram and my Facebook page for Matchmaker are probably the most popular places where I have the most outreach. And in those places, I will write as Kitty because Kitty Power, I want Kitty Power to exist. And when people watched... Cupquake's videos and I appeared on Cupquake's channel that was incredibly meta no one had seen a video game character that existed in real life and <laughs> appeared on a YouTube show oh, I love that so much Richard playing so good. their own game with the YouTuber it's like it was brilliant it never never really been done before and all these little kids minds were blown it was like they had so many questions is that a man or a woman what's a drag queen like I didn't realise Kitty Powers was real and all this kind of thing. And OMG and all this kind of thing. It's hysterical. And I want to make people ask questions, especially young people who don't, you know, they have all this heteronormative stuff being piled upon them by society that is good. And, and a lot of drag is alternative and a bit punk and a bit more adult and it all happens in nightclubs which are like 21 plus. Yeah. So all these little twelve-year-olds don't really get to see that. So for me, it's actually a bit of a 
I have to be quite careful to keep my drag clean and uh, but it's also you know I feel like I have a responsibility to bring drag to those kids and for them for it to provoke them but in a less confusing way so i have to yeah, keep for it, it not to be like a weird threatening unknown it's just it's just another thing it's, and it's fine it, and it's fun you know and i do get some odd comments but nothing really venomous or horrible yeah. or trolly mostly if people think i'm so cool and isn't my makeup fabulous you know but i want them also to be aware that in real life i'm a bloke and i go to the gym and i you know i i do blokey things and you know, that sounds terrible, <laughs> but you know what I mean. So what I'm trying to say is that there's a lot of femme shaming goes on and it's all doubt, you know, it's all sexism really, but yeah, it's the same thing that drives all of that. And I'm trying to de, I'm trying to kind of get rid of that. And it's much more important to do that with younger kids. Absolutely is to say it's okay to express yourself in whatever gender identity you choose to put yourself out as. And just because I do, you know, masculine 90% of the time and feminine 10% of the time, that's okay. You know, that's that's basically what it is. It's just yeah. me expressing myself. And it's, it, you know, it's um, it's important. So that's part of why I do that as well, and I and I feel like I don't want to keep them completely separate. Yeah, you, you has to. They have to be able to see behind the curtain because that makes the curtain that much more magical. Like my, my most popular Instagram posts are when I post a picture of me in the gym looking all pumped, and a picture of me looking all fabulous in drag, and I put them next to each other. And then Transformation Tuesday is the hashtag and. They're the they're the pictures that get the most likes because I mean that's the magic. Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, the that the transformation is what makes it magical, and that's another reason, like, why I put myself in the game in a photograph. So I have to do a photo shoot to generate all the content for Kitty in the game, whereas all the other drag games is just a cartoon of a drag queen, which might as well be a woman. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's like, Absolutely. draw a picture of a drag queen, just looks like a lady, a fabulous lady. <laughs> when really, you know, to do it as a drag fan myself, it's like, no, you want to see that some poor sod had to spend hours in makeup and get the hair sorted out and <laughs> get Travis' costume together and not just have some artist draw a picture of it. So, um, yeah, it's there's a lot of threads and then a lot of strategy and a lot of artistry and a lot of love it's behind. so much fun though like i mean that's that's the kind of the thing you kind of keep coming back to it's just the whole like I, I really i can't stress enough how much i love the meta stuff of the character on the live stream of the game like it's so it's so fun it's so good um, yeah it's really good and like yeah that i'm actually hoping to develop an act, a stage version of maybe like a, I'm like Kitty's very good at doing game showy stuff. Yeah. People are always asking me, do you have a performance thing that you do? Yeah. And for me, I don't want to drift away from games too much, but I also feel like Kitty needs something to do on stage 
because she's a drag queen, right? And people might want to book her for, for, for to do stuff on stage. And I ought to be good, be able to do that. So I'm going, once Love Life is done, we're going to try and put together some kind of stage version of essentially matchmaker, but it may not be about dating. It might just be a quiz, but it'll be like a game show. But we're going to drive it all using video game technology. So we're going to build an app in Unity and have that obviously be able to output to a screen on the stage and Kitty will host it and the audience will be able to participate by going online and connecting up through the internet to the game itself. It'd be super cool. That um, sounds amazing. If I can make it happen, and that you know that might be a way to also to... Because games that take a long time to make, two years, like, it seems to be my track record. So um, That's pretty good. To be able to do that in between games coming out would, would be good to keep the fans amused and <laughs> make a little bit of extra cash. Do a little tour. Well, I'm, I'm also doing contract work for, for Media Molecule again, because you know I worked on Tearaway. Yes. Also, I'm working on Dreams now. Um, so that's super cool as well, and it's nice to be able to get my hands dirty um, on that. And that's like that sounds like super interesting contract work to be doing. Oh yeah, it's, it's amazing and a job most people would kill for. So I'm very lucky that I've got those guys are also my friends, like the people that run Media Molecule. Yeah, I had I had Siobhan on the show last year or earlier this year, I think. Yeah, yeah, we, me and Siobhan are busy mates. So um, she was a lot of fun. She is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm gonna, <laughs> yeah. Let, let's let's close up. Um, before we sort of finish, though. Um, like, where can people find your game? Where, where's your, your Twitter handles, all that stuff? Okay, so you can buy, you can find links to all the places you can buy the game on kittypowersmatchmaker.com. That's the game that's already out. KittypowersloveLife.com is a link to the page where eventually we'll have the links for Love Life, which is coming out next February 2018. Uh, Kitty Powers is available online. Her handle is always Ms. Kitty Powers, M.S. Kitty Powers. So that's Instagram, Twitter. Um, I think you can use that one on Facebook. But if you just do a search for Kitty Powers on Facebook, you'll find her. There's also a page for Matchmaker and Love Life as well on Facebook. And Magic Notion, which is the company. Uh, what else? Um, MagicNotion.com is where we have all our news. There's also Magic Notion on Twitter. And Auntie Rich is my personal uh, Twitter as well, if you want to follow me there. Cause I, Richard tends to talk about all the stuff that Kitty keeps. Kitty keeps it all light and fluffy. Richard talks about politics sometimes. <laughs> not very often, though, because I'm not very good at that. Oh, and it's exhausting. Like It's worse than kind of game development, eh? If you, if you miss a week of politics, then all sorts of other catastrophes have happened while you weren't looking. Uh, let's know. not dwell on that though um that was super fun richard was that okay for you yeah yeah good good i mean i'm hoping you'll edit it a little bit <laughs> i want to talk to you Ooh, i've been to georgia and california and anywhere i could run took the hand of a preacher man and we made love in the sun but i ran out of places and friendly faces because I had to be free I've been to 